Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Coming to you practically live from the Ponderosa in Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> I like the new location. <laughs> yeah, I miss the smell of pizza, though. I really <laughs> do. nothing beats the Ponderosa. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm your uh, host, Nate Larkin, or one of the host hostesses. Ho- uh, yes. I'm not a hostess, no, but I am uh, one of the hostesses. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, here with Mondo uh, Grimes, our fearless, peerless engineer, and uh, today's man of mystery, uh, Newton Dominey. What, what, what are we going to... You said deck boy last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mystery. Yes. And speaking of mysteries, uh, the baffling mystery of Aaron's absence last week has been solved. The Commodore has returned. Yeah, he was he 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 was off the grid. He was out of range. He was uh, I don't know somewhere in the outback last week at a kids camp. Tell us about that, Aaron. Yeah, all four of my kids went to a, a camp that I had the privilege of starting with a friend of mine 18 years ago, and so it was. Awesome to see it still running and third through eighth graders running around. Uh, I guess third through, yeah, going to ninth grade. So it's been the first time I've spent a whole week uh, being a co-counselor responsible for young children in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Feeling your age, are you, Aaron? Uh, You know, I had so much fun. I am built for camp ministry. I love camp ministry. I think it's something to do with you get to just like, unload on people and then say, well, I'll see you next year. Like, that's perfect. I love that. Yeah. That's so not uh, like it happens in church. Yeah, in yeah. church, you, you know, whatever you said this week is going to come back very soon. Yeah, You wound up as a camp pastor, didn't you, or camp preacher? Or I, I did the Bible stories oh, in the okay. morning, and then I did one of the chapels okay. and helped with all the music and uh, was a co-counselor of good, the littlest good, boys. Good. And did you do the sex addiction group too? <laughs> I, I did hang out with the uh, the other counselors after lights out. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, but you have been. You, I'm glad they they aren't going to be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> but you, are far from being AWOL, you have been a very busy man, Aaron. You've been off showing a great deal of initiative. On behalf of the podcast and our vast audience of Samson guys, conducting interviews, having very interesting conversations with a character named Science Mike. Yeah, that's going to be our first interview this morning, but this is uh, this represents something we're hoping to do like once a month, which is our investigative uh, radio program. We're going to take a topic and see if we can't... Uh, Maybe come to some new understanding, broaden the horizons of our minds. So there are two buns in the oven right now. Uh, one, <laughs> is on, All right. one is on po- post-traumatic stress disorder and why is it coming up so much these days, uh, historically, where's it, where's it coming from? And then most importantly, how do we work with and love well those people that are dealing with that? So uh, that's one topic and another one on questions in the church. But today, 
Today we get to talk about certainty.、Uh, I, I think I began pondering this while driving to Oregon earlier in the summer, and the idea that the church has made it one of its、uh, one of the pillars is being certain of what you believe. That's a pillar of the faith. But why? Because what happens when I start to doubt? What happens when I'm confused? Where did the idea of certainty even come in? Is it something God insists on? When I'm not certain, is God upset with me? Does He think that my faith is now unworthy? I don't know. What do you guys think about the idea of certainty? How's it? How's it strike your lives? Wow! What a great question. I re- I remember accepting it really as a given. Of the Christian faith, that a faith was equated with,、uh, yes,、uh, intellectual and、um, uh, volitional certainty. And I remember, you know, going to college and having all kinds of questions asked, raised, questions that were out of bounds, that were inappropriate, that were never raised when I was growing up in church.、Uh, assertions made that would have gotten me punched in the mouth. Uh, I was faced with、uh, f- evidence that I'd never seen before, that first of all challenged my faith, and then scared me to death. The doubt was terrifying. Yeah.、Uh, the temptation was then just to plug my ears, close my eyes, and、uh, you know, hum my way back to some kind of blind faith so that I could breathe again, or. Um, find faith at a different level, and it took several years for me to get there. And did you, in the end, did you feel like the fluctuation of your faith, which is just spiritual growth, the times when you hit、yeah. a new question、yeah. that you can't answer? Did you come to a place where you could give yourself permission, or was anyone else giving you permission to have that process, to have some level of uncertainty, or did you were you on your own in that department? Fortunately, I found、uh, a community of faith at college that understood faith a bit differently from the way I'd been raised to think of it, and those folks really helped me. You know, they kind of administered oxygen during those terrifying times.、Hmm. <laughs> and I would say that you know today my faith is deeper and stronger than it's ever been at any point in my life. Yet I'm probably certain of far less than I was when I was 17.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, man. The more I feel certain concerning my faith, the more stagnant I become. Ah. <clears throat>、um, I don't pursue what I. I don't pursue God or relationship or His love for me as 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 strong as I did. Well, the, the un, I think uncertainty is a driving force for me.、Mm. Um, I find when I'm certain about when I, especially you know, as a young Christian, I was certain about all these different things, and I felt like I kept hitting a brick wall, or the bottom was you know falling out, or the rug was being pulled from underneath me, and then here comes the uncertainty. Yeah, and then uncertainty drives me to seek. You know what is true about God. What is true about the gospel. What is true about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, I slip back into okay. I found that answer. Now I'm certain again.、Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the rug is pulled out again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we're we're gonna we're gonna actually talk about that in one of the interviews. We talk about the goal 
of many Christians is certainty. Like that's their whole end zone that they're trying to get the ball right. to. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is yes. to be certain. And when you look at scripture and you look at what Jesus says, that doesn't even come up. Exactly. Like that that's not what Jesus is saying. You know, my, my goal for you is I want you to, to be certain. He says the goal for you is to know me. Yeah. And to enter into abide with me, to enter into this relationship with me. And there's a lot of uncertainty in relationships. Uh, there's a there's a lot of ebbing and flowing. I don't understand your behavior right now. I don't have the same confidence, but I'm trusting your character, even though I'm confused and less certain. So the first interview we're going to do is uh, with Science Mike, who's going to take this from a scientific perspective, because I wanted to understand if there was any brain connection that's hardwired in that we're experiencing when we experience stuff we're talking about. So we're going to start with that, and then we're going to go over to philosopher Mark, PhD philosopher from Cornell. So you got to get yourself, you know, your Ivy League PhD philosopher to answer the other side of the question. So we're going to be so much smarter at the end of this morning, it's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> so what you're saying is grab, grab your smoking jacket and your pipe and sit back for a learning experience. Why do you think <laughs> I have my pipe this morning? As, as he pulls out the pipe. That's right, that's right. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to start this, and, and we're just going to talk about it as we go, all right? So here we go. We live in a time where no matter where you are on the spectrum, I, I don't care if you're an atheist, there's there's a lot of folks that want certainty there. If you're a Christian, you have to be certain or your faith is maybe in jeopardy. Where do you think this idea came from? Has it always been or is it a, a more recent phenomenon? It's brains. It's just brains. Human brains want certainty. Uh, so if you look at, at what makes humans humans, if you look at consciousness, think about your dog, right? I don't care if you're a dog person or not. Everybody knows dogs. What's your dog thinking about right now? He's thinking about right now. Uh, he's thinking, am I hungry? Uh, am I in pain? Um, is the temperature comfortable? If all those things are, are fine, your dog's happy, right? Mm -hmm. He's not thinking about how bad his meeting could go with his boss tomorrow. <laughs> uh, he's not thinking uh, about you know whether you're going to run out of dog food. He's not even thinking about whether the door's unlocked if he has to use the bathroom later tonight. Your dog is fully present, and your dog is fully present because he doesn't have the same sort of sophisticated neocortex that human beings do. Uh, the neocortex is a thin layer of very intricate uh, brain matter on the, on the outermost layer of human brains, and the front of your neocortex, like behind your forehead, is the prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is responsible for your will, your agency, uh, your evaluations of ethics, and your ability to forecast the future. And it turns out that one of the things that most separates humans from other animals is our ability to build forecasts about the future. Your brain is constantly guessing what could happen in the next five minutes, the next five hours, and the next five days. It is constantly making projections about that. And you're happiest when some of your guesses are right. You know what's coming. It's our ability to know what's coming that has allowed us to overcome and defeat animals that are stronger and faster and have sharper claws. It's our ability to think 
consciously about this winter versus last winter that lets us make far more elaborate preparations. Well, what does that mean? When we misforecast some environmental variable, it can mean death for us or members of our tribe. It can mean death. The stakes of certainty are very high. So when you imagine a husband and a wife, they build very elaborate models of each other. It's the person they spend the most time with, probably, or I might even say ideally. Um, but when you misforecast your spouse's behavior, when your model is wrong, it surprises you and it scares you because this relationship that you've invested so much in, this person whose safety and whose security is so important to your own is doing something unpredictable and it threatens your certainty. So what we've seen and the way our brains develop, we crave new information like we crave food or sex. We constantly want to be in the know about what's happening so that we can build better models of reality. And neurologically speaking, for us, uncertainty is very similar to pain. Uh, your brain, when it doesn't know what's going to happen, is in a similar state to your brain when you are in pain. So we'll do anything we can to avoid uncertainty. And suddenly, all kinds of light bulbs come on and life starts to make more sense. The crave, the need, the bias towards certainty appears to be a core feature of human brains and a factor that helps produce consciousness. Am I hearing that right, that he's saying, like right there at the end, it sounds like what he's saying is, it's normal for us to want to know things emphatic or concrete. Yeah. That, yeah, that's yeah. a normal thing. He is going beyond saying it's normal. He is saying it is uh, both a part of creation and something that has been sophisticatedly developed yeah. in our lives, which makes total sense. I mean, you, you all know the feeling of the month that you're not sure, uh, you don't have certainty about where your money's coming from to pay the bills and how that gives you a sense of pain. The uncertainty, yeah. it's more than just like, ah, oh, shucks, I'd like to know. That was Jimmy Stewart not having his bills. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know what's happening. Uh, it, it actually has that pain he's talking about, which is yeah. really interesting. But even worse than that, I love the comment he made where he said, when we make a prediction, when we forecast, oh, this month will be okay because of X, Y, and Z, and then we turn out uh, to be wrong that that unsettles far more than just that one issue yeah. because it makes us wonder, can I trust myself in this area or that, or can life be trusted or can God be trusted? Yeah. And the, the link, the link with making predictions and getting those predictions, right. That link to happiness. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've never really considered that, that, I'm happiest when my guesses turn out right, mm -hmm. you know. Which builds a powerful motivator for denial or distortion. If I have to yeah. be right, and, and the only way to do that is to alter my perception and convince myself that black is white or blue is green, or I really did think this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, this is a powerful motivator toward delusion, isn't it? It is.
Absolutely. We guard ourselves from all sorts of pain, and that's certainly uh, one way to do it. I do think the consequences of delusion are going to catch up with anybody who's doing right. that because it's a false, uh, it's a false assurance. Uh, someone actually just asked me that when we were talking uh, about this topic. They said, well, if you predict something right but it's a wrong thing, do you still get that happiness out of it? Uh, or if you predict something wrong but you think it's right, like, and then you find out a week later, oh, I was wrong. Well, our brain's just taking that, oh, I'm right, and having the pleasure until the consequences come rolling down. So let's see what else uh, Mr. Mike has to say. Okay, so you said when we're not certain or uh, when our certainty is threatened, it's uh, akin to pain. So I'm thinking of different kinds of people. Uh, the person who, when they get to a period of life, maybe their finances are really uncertain and they're just they're feeling that pain that you're talking about. Some people tend to spiral into depression. Other people are the pull themselves up by their bootstraps and start a new business. Uh, some people get really pugnacious and angry towards others. So why, what are the factors that seem to make us as humans uh, react so differently to this brain issue that's happening universally? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, so in general, um, we start with a template. Everyone starts with a template, and that's their DNA. Okay, so your DNA is going to set a lot of baseline things about you. Um, almost all people can run, right? Almost every human being can run. Not every single human being can. Some people are disabled, but in general, most people have the capacity to run. However, we don't all have the same capacity to run. Some people are naturally faster runners than others, right? Uh, but Training makes a big difference. If you practice running your whole life and you're not naturally a very fast runner, but you, I mean, from the time that you can walk until your college years, you run for a significant amount of every time, you're going to run pretty fast. And in fact, you're going to run faster than a naturally fast runner who does not train. Even though that person potentially has a greater genetic potential for running than you do, your consistent performance is going to give you the edge. Well, they have squandered their talents. They buried their talents in the sand. <laughs> I had to go there. There's, there's actually did, there's, there's a flannel graph right behind me. I'm doing the story. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can imagine that a naturally fast runner who trains to run is going to be Usain Bolt. He's going to be pretty much unbeatable. Um, but we're more than our template. And on top of our DNA, which makes up our genome, we have an epigenome. And your epigenome is the way your genes are expressed at a molecular level. And suddenly, uh, more than heredity is involved in your, in your template. We've seen, for example, that... Um, if your parents are either uh, up to their neck in food and obese or on the edge of famine at the time you are conceived, it does not affect your DNA, but it does affect your epigenomic expression. 
So it's not just this um, chain of molecules uh, in the center of your nucleus that's affecting your baseline potential. It's also the circumstances your parents were in at the time of your conception, development, and birth. From there, there's a tremendous amount of stimulus, of socialization. Your, your brain, which had this raw potential, gets shaped radically by your childhood. It gets radically affected by your childhood development and what kind of stimulus you received, whether uh, and when you begin to uh, take action in the world, those actions are reinforced, and that's either very positive, very negative, or somewhere in between. All those things begin to work together to shape a human being. So we are a product of our nature plus our nurture. But what makes human beings interesting is we are one of the few animals who can consciously recondition ourselves without external input. So if you're a person who uh, comes from a fat family and you're fat, uh, and I'm speaking from experience here, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I struggle uh, to maintain a healthy weight, but I can make a decision to exercise and eat healthy and constantly reinforce myself to modify my behaviors, and I can become a thinner person. So back to certainty. We all have some genetic and natural biases to how we deal with uncertainty. That has then been conditioned into us by our family and our community. But at the end of the day, we can all make conscious decisions to deal with uncertainty differently. How challenging that will be depends on those other factors. You may have a very long hill to climb uh, if you have you know, really poor conditioning relating to certainty, but you can still make a choice to deal with life circumstances in a way that's healthier for you and healthier for others. So that's crossing a lot of lines into uh, what what we have experienced in a lot of guys and how they deal with the the failures, the way things haven't turned out, whether it was in addiction or in relationships. Uh, so what did you guys hear during that section? What stuck out to you? Well, to me, I, I got this hopeful message about uh, the influence that we actually do have, the, the fact that we can uh, make intentional choices, which I'm convinced we can only do consistently with the help of community. Um, you know, I developed early on a pattern of dealing with uncertainty that involved medication uh, of a sexual nature, right, that snowballed into addiction. Um, now, once I understood what the consequences were, once I came to grips with uh, powerlessness and started to make resolutions in the other direction. I discovered that uh, while I'm at this, I do have to make that choice every day to surrender. Um, eventually, I'm going to get tired, or I'm going to get overwhelmed, or I'm going to get lost. And if I'm left only to my own resources, eventually. I'll be uh, swept back into that old pattern that is mine by you know because of nurture and nature and you know long experience. 
It is. I think it adds a gracious piece too that when when I'm dealing with another person who has a very different uh, upbringing, so they might be wired differently by God, brought up extremely differently, and they are behaving in a way that will frustrate me because it's destructive to them and to others, and they're not dealing it like, quote, I would. Uh, I think there's a lot in what Mike's saying that should open up space for people to be in that process, because that's that's some pretty complicated stuff. I actually I love how deeply he's delving into the scientific side, just as a reminder that these things are not even slightly simple. So for the non-science guys, raising my hand here, I I dropped chemistry and biology. Uh, like what's the what's the takeaway? Like the simple takeaway for the guy in his car didn't follow all that. I think the, the simple takeaway is that we develop habits. Uh, we, we saw first how important certainty is to us at a very basic level, but then we develop habits to deal with the uncertainty of our lives. And we need to recognize, oh, this pattern in my life uh, is me coping with a lot of fear and uncertainty, and it doesn't have to be that way. I can develop new patterns. God has built my brain, my my body and my brain in such a way that change can happen. It will take work, and it will take vigilance. Uh, I took a part of this interview out uh, just because it was we talked for a long time, where he talks about losing his weight and changing the way he thinks. And running, I think it was a half marathon. And then he celebrated his victory in changing his lifestyle by gaining half the weight back. <laughs> and that's just so typical for us, right? So all of those things, uh, I think, are the message that, that we need that gives us the hope Nate's talking about and the warnings that we need to stay on the path that's leading us towards abundant life, that's leading us towards a deeper relationship with Jesus. And this stuff can really get in the way. brains want certainty and how that was important for us. Say, if I lived in a tribe in Africa that I knew, man, that brush is high over there. There could be a lion in it, so I'm going to take this path. And so all that's that forecasting you're talking about that's a part of our neurological structure. But then we take that and bring it to something as awesomely huge and mysterious as the person of God. So we've gone from the the basic structure that we have all the information right here, if we choose to put the pieces together. And then certainty comes into our faith walk. 
where we think we need it or we start forecasting? How, how does that change the game? So obviously what you think about God is going to be very fundamental to how you view the world. If you believe there's no God, uh, you have just whittled away a huge number of available philosophical outlooks and epistemologies, mm-hmm. right? Right. right. <laughs> You're not going to be a dispensationalist atheist. <laughs> it's not. You can't right. pull it off. Right. Uh, if you're going to be an atheist, you're going to be a naturalist. You'll be a materialist. You could be a nihilist and be an atheist. That would work. Um, but you know, you're you're. It's going to affect the way that you process information, and the way that you understand the world. Likewise, your understanding of God uh, affects the way that you view the world and act within it. Uh, a lot of people who are very certain about God uh, also have a conception of God which is angry or vengeful. And when you you believe God is angry or vengeful, it affects the way that your brain works. Your limbic system, the part of your brain that's responsible for emotions, but especially for fear and for anger, is going to stay aroused very often. It means that you're going to respond to threats to your ideology or anybody that's part of the outgroup with hostility. It's going to be difficult for you to forgive yourself for any um, actions that you don't approve of and difficult to forgive others as well. Uh, now, it's going to be easier on some level to control impulses because you're afraid God will uh, be, get you, smite right, you, whatever. He'll be vengeful on you, right? Um, <laughs> so, so it's not all bad. Uh, but then if you if you look at another way, there's a lot of people that look at God as, as primarily loving, and you can have a very certain outlook of a loving God or a very uncertain outlook about a loving God, but you still view God as primarily loving. And when that happens, a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex uh, strengthens and develops uh, and becomes more active versus other parts of your brain. And then when you focus on God's love frequently, uh, you actually view the world as safer and more compassionate. Uh, and it improves your your focus and your concentration, uh, and it uh, it makes it easier for you to treat others with compassion because you view that as a safe activity because your conception of a loving God leads you to believe, whether this is factual or not, by the way, but it leads you to believe that good will ultimately prevail, that God loves us all, that God loves you, and therefore things like grace and forgiveness are safe possibilities, even when they seem like they are not. Um, now, anybody, it's difficult for someone to, to hold something as neurologically sophisticated and uh, neurologically expensive as belief in God. It's always difficult to have that challenged. You said a belief in God is neurologically expensive, which is a great phrase. But what exactly did you mean by it? <laughs> We're in a golden era right now in terms of understanding the brain because our ability to apply physics through engineering is getting very good. And so we have all these imaging technologies that let us look into brains that are alive as they are active, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a handful of technologies. Pretty famous one is the functional MRI, the fMRI, but there's others. And when you use those technologies and you study religious people, you see that there is no God spot in the brain. 
that for people who are true believers, for people who experience God often, people who pray frequently, uh, God is a rich network of connections in different parts of the brain, that God involves the prefrontal cortex, uh, the orbitofrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, the thalamus, uh, the parietal lobe, all these sorts of parts of the brain uh, create these loops um, in order for you to know and understand God. And, and in these people, God is not anything as simple as an idea. It's not just some piece of information that's being recalled. But God is, is a feeling and an experience that the person has, which is why true believers tend to have such robust belief systems. You can challenge the factual basis of much of their belief in God without destroying their understanding of God because their understanding of God is primarily experiential, right? That, yeah. Um, it's something that happens to them. It's something that they participate in. It's something that they feel and experience, not just something that they believe. And so what that means is if you, like me, I'm a person who's prayed every day my whole life. I've spent a lot of time contemplating God. Uh, so when I became an atheist, neurological circuits I'd spent almost, well, more than 30 years developing had to kind of sit twiddling their thumbs or or uh, slowly dissociate. Um, that's expensive. Uh, human brains, you know, your brain sits up there, it doesn't move, and it takes up to 20% of your body's nutrients. It takes up to 25% of your oxygen. Uh, your brain is such an intricate machine that it has an insatiable appetite for energy. So, so maintaining a lot of neural energy towards something like a belief in God is expensive. And, and some scientists argue is therefore probably evolutionary beneficial because selection pressures would have never permitted it otherwise. What I'm hearing him say here is that my, my predisposition for certainty and belief and now I'm trying to hang on to the thought. My predisposition for certainty and belief is something that um, I can grow, but it takes a lot of energy, mm -hmm. or that I can let lapse, but that I can get back, but that my ability to really feel certain about what I believe as it relates to God in this case really isn't something I have a whole lot of choice in initially and and that it takes me a lot of energy if i if, if i'm just a guy that is predisposed to doubt it's going to take me a lot of energy and a lot of effort to move from that position of doubt to a position of certainty and it may be a constant thing to, to get that real estate uh, yeah and I, th I think part of it i mean if, if we just step back uh, away from from all of the technical and just see the picture that was just uh, painted. Because we believe that God created our brains on purpose and that we were created to know and discover him, he's talking about our brains when, we were, when we're dealing with the idea of God, when we are praying and focused on God, that there are more parts of our brain working at the same time to capture all of those thoughts, like our brains were built to run in high gear when we're dealing with God. 
Hmm. Whereas other activities, it's just one part of my brain that's working and then another part's remembering something and another part then feels something. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's tying the whole thing together. Now, that's not proof that there is a God. Uh, I know that that's where a lot of people go with that um, because you can... Uh, I asked him this, and and we'll probably just leave this out for the sake of time. But you know, he talked about how any belief, even a humanistic belief, can become a dogma. They can put the same energy and same thoughts into it, and start to create that. But the fact that it is so natural from a young age that we develop an idea about God, and it starts to tie our whole brains together, like that's just that's a an incredibly beautiful picture of God both wanting to be known and that our brains were built to know. Uh, let me ask you a question, by the way, Aaron. Uh, Mike referenced his becoming an atheist. Is that a phase that he went through? Yeah, uh, and anyone that wants to look up, um, Mike uh, has a website where it'll give his whole story. But he went from being a very conservative Baptist uh, preaching in his church and leading in his church, and then he started to have a lot of questions, and that's going to be another topic that we'll deal with uh, in the not-too-distant future, questions he didn't feel safe asking, and so he decided to go to the computer and find his answers, and it just started disassociating himself from people, and so he ended up becoming an atheist for a time, but then that didn't satisfy him. And so in the end, it brought him back to the person of Jesus, that there was confusion for him between the, the church and some of the ideas he grew up with and knowing Jesus. So he went from church to atheist and to Jesus himself and then came back to the church. Mm. So that's, that's his trajectory, which, which makes these conversations really interesting to me because he's a guy who has as honestly as he knows how, sought to answer the hard questions. Those atheists who, who use a certainty in science as their chief defense of their belief system, of not believing, <laughs> is, that, is that an okay way to phrase that? You tell me. Works for me. Okay. Okay. Uh, what, at what point should such a person hold their uh, belief that science has reached a certainty with uh, the same attitude that you hold your relationship with God saying, I don't know what I don't know yet, so I'm, I'm ready for new information? Because I, I look at the history of science, and the history of science is what we believed yesterday much of it, we found out, oh, yeah, that's that that wasn't the way it is because now we see it differently. But every generation of scientists seems to think science has reached the point where we no longer have to think, uh, yeah, tomorrow we'll figure out something totally different. So how do you as a science guy walk through that? There are a lot of scientists who aren't good at science, not at the fundamental level. Uh, here's the thing. My approach to God, I stole from science. Good science says all knowledge is provisional. Everything you know can be changed by data. 
Everything you know can be changed by new data. And so a good scientist understands that even though uh, we may have very high confidence in certain beliefs today, we have very high confidence uh, in the Big Bang Theory and in cosmic inflation, we have very high confidence in the theory of evolution, um, we understand that all knowledge is provisional. So my level of certainty about a belief, my confidence in a belief, should be directly proportional to the amount of evidence I have for it. You cannot prove anything in science. You can only prove things in mathematics, right? right? There are no scientific proofs. Right, only math. Science proofs. simply looks at evidence and ascribes ever-increasing confidence as you get more data. Okay, wait, pause Pause there for so, a second. Pause there for a second, because I think what you just said, uh, a lot of people have not heard that or haven't thought through that before. So let's let's say the same thing again, slower. Math has proofs. The word... Math has proofs. The word, science does not. Right. All science does is put confidence and belief in proportion to the amount of evidence available. And new data changes that. New data can change any scientific belief. So even though we, it looks like we've got a really good handle on how the universe formed, a lot of that understanding is based on gravity. And we don't know very much about gravity. Uh, we know gravity is one of the fundamental forces of physics, but we don't know what its force carrier is. We know the force carrier. We know the particle for every other force in physics. But gravity is a mystery. The standard model, which is how we understand the science of very small things, you might have heard it referred to as particle physics or quantum physics, completely ignores gravity. It pretends that it does not exist. But we know gravity does exist on a quantum level. So when we look at our most basic understanding, which is the standard model, and our most macro understanding, uh, which is Einstein's uh, relativity, mm -hmm. those two things don't reconcile. They're incompatible. So we understand that there's some additional insight to be had about the most fundamental levels of reality. We know that we have not arrived. So any scientist is going to hold their ideas with some degree of humility. That doesn't mean all ignorance is equal. Um, you know, if someone believes because of religious uh, purposes um, that uh, the universe was born from the belly of a cosmic giraffe, um, that belief doesn't get the same level of respect as Big Bang cosmology. Why? There's no evidence for it. So um, still, the, the idea that scientific beliefs change is not actually a reason to cast doubt on the sciences. It's actually a reason to trust the sciences because science will never say this shall always be. Science is honest, honest enough when done correctly. Right. <laughs> science is honest enough to say we do not have all the answers. We will probably never have all the answers. And even if we thought we had all the answers, there's always a chance that we missed something and could be wrong. Now let's, now let's ask the question from the Christian side of that. Throughout church history, we've, we've got the mystics who hold their idea of God. Uh, I don't want to say they hold it lightly. That's not true. But they allow for a lot of room for God to surprise them. And then you've got those... I am, I am very much a mystic, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured. 
And and then we have those who kind of form the dogmas of the faith. Now, this might even go back to some of the, the DNA and brain setup that some people are just wired to go more of a dogmatic route and others to hold things uh, to not need as much certainty in that area. So what do you see talking about the the history of the Christian church again and the idea of certainty with these different groups that have a very different approach to what God expects from them and what the world needs from them? Okay. Uh, well, I don't know that it's wired because at some point in my life, I have wanted great certainty about God and held certainty as vital. I did not pretend to be a young conservative evangelical. I was a young <laughs> conservative evangelical. Um, but human beliefs, there's a theory um, that, that however you view the world is a response to the world. It's an adaptation. It's a means of survival. And so for different strategies for coping with the environment, uh, different core values become more or less advantageous. Um, so for some groups, uh, a rigid definition and a sacred text are vital. For other groups, the importance of honoring different ideas and different understandings and different traditions are vital. And all these things are a result of human brains being successful at modifying the environment but then having to turn around and adapt to the modifications they made, right? Mm -hmm. So at some point, some human got smart enough to pick up a stick and whack somebody with it, which means human brains had to respond to be ready to watch out to get whacked with a stick. So then someone else figured out that you could sharpen the end of a stick and throw it, and it made one heck of a weapon. And suddenly human brains had to respond and create defensive strategies for Man, spears. There, there is so right? much to worry about right now. You are causing me fear. <laughs> <laughs> but our, brain, our brains are great at it. So what happens, we continually change the environment with new insight, new information, and then have to respond to that. So at some level, it's normal and it's healthy for a person to crave and need certainty about God. For some other person who processes through that and deals with new changes to the environment as a result of that belief, it becomes important, like me, to be a mystic who holds our idea of God loosely. Not holds God loosely, but holds our ideas about God loosely. And neither of those things are superior or better or smarter. They're simply more or less timely to a given set of circumstances. concept of, of holding God loosely versus holding God tightly. Like, that there's not a quali quality difference between the two. Yeah. Was, yeah. Although each side would say, if they're being dogmatic about their beliefs, that the other side is being inappropriate with God. Right. Hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, when I got into 12-step recovery, uh, 
you know, one of the things that can be very difficult about 12-step recovery for Christians is that it has intentionally a very loose conception of God. It holds ideas about God lightly, yeah. loosely. So we talk about uh, a, a, higher, a power greater than myself rather than God. And 12-step recovery is insistent upon that point. Well, I was able to do that because, for whatever reason, I happen to have a high a tolerance for ambiguity. I can operate within a gray area. Now, I've taken a lot of good, solid Christian folks to 12-step meetings, uh, good people who I trust and admire, who, for whatever reason, uh, could not handle that much yeah. ambiguity. That was me. Right? Yeah. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we started the Samson Society, uh, which is a company of Christian men. And we're very clear in our meetings to have uh, a statement of faith, which is not, it's broad, it's not overly dogmatic. Most any Christian can subscribe to it. But um, it makes it easier for us who are Christians. It takes that one piece of uh, uncertainty off the table and makes it a little easier for us to trust each other be honest and be together. Um, but I don't think that my personal tolerance for ambiguity is superior to uh, another person's need for greater definition. I don't think that makes me a person of stronger faith or higher intellect. And this really has, this has really helped, helped me uh, to understand that a little better. I really liked how Mike talked about the seasons of life and how he approached God, that there was a season in his life when approaching God as a very conservative Baptist was appropriate for him. And and then he came to another part of his life where he needed to approach God, the same God, the same Jesus, through a, a different mindset, some different information, uh, just a different view and that that was important for his heart and that process can happen very naturally but I think when we uh, hold to the dogmas of man we don't put ourselves in a position to be able to go there mm. and early on in that clip he says something to the effect of uh, he holds his idea of God loosely but he doesn't hold God loosely yeah yeah. And I think that's a, for me, that's a big distinction. Mm -hmm. He also says that, um, I think he says that mystics uh, are open to being surprised by God. Uh, and that, again, that, that feels comforting to me. Mm. You know, that it's not, I could call it doubt, but the, maybe the positive way to look at that is I'm open to God surprising me mm. with, with who he is. Yeah. Not being certain of who he is.
And we're back in the Pirate Monk podcast. Wow. We got some stuff to think about, didn't we? Yeah. I've got an idea that, that this little conversation is going to get rewound and replayed a few times while uh, our listeners unpack. And, and I'm confident uh, come up with a lot of gold from that conversation. What do you think, Aaron? Well, this, I think, a couple things. One, this is only part one of two. Next week, we will go away from the science and ask this same question about certainty from uh, a different perspective and have a conversation with Mark Case, a Ph.D. philosopher from Cornell University. So we will bring the ivory tower to you. Uh, (laughs) And so I, I really would love to hear as people process this side of the conversation and then get to bring in the other, like how this kind of forms, hopefully bringing some freedom to their lives, mm. uh, understanding their their own hearts and need for certainty, but also not uh, taking out the condemnation aspect of uncertainty. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for. And I would love to, uh, you guys mentioned trying to put up the full interview. Just so you know, I had to cut like half of this interview out just because it was so long. But there were a lot of great questions. Uh, uh, the answers were okay, but the questions were phenomenal. There were a lot of interesting topics that Mike talked about uh, concerning, uh, especially he has a lot of friends who are atheists as he had uh, gone in and come out of that world, and he speaks on that a little bit more. So we'll see if we can figure out, for those of you that really dig this kind of conversation, how to get you one of those uh, audio recordings. Let us know if you actually want it before we put the effort into it. And how would anyone let us know anything, Nate? They would send us an email. They would address it. They would hand address it with a stamped, self-addressed envelope. To uh, the to Samson Podcast at gmail.com or Pirate Monk Radio at gmail.com. We check both boxes. All right, we'd love to hear from you. Any ideas for people that you'd like to see interviewed or hear interviewed? Uh, we would love to know about it. We'll try to get them. So give us some obscure author or person or. Uh, homeless man in your city, and we'll make it happen. And by the way, we have gotten a few uh, suggestions that we are following up on. Uh, We are responsive here at the podcast. Aye. All right. Well, uh, the time has flown. The hour is gone. We have uh, consumed another hour, but it has not been wasted. It's been very constructive, hasn't it? My brain is really active right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. is your is your neocortex yes. all lit up right now? Yes. All the empty matter that I had when I walked in yeah, yeah. is full right now. So. <laughs> hey, you know what? You know what? I totally forgot to send people to Mike's website. Uh, we have no certainty <laughs> the pronunciation of his last name, but Mike McCargie, uh, it at MikeMcCargie.com. M I K E M C. H-A-R-G-U-E.com. Yeah. Is that is that where we're going? All right. You have heard it from Nate, and so it shall be. <laughs> Go check him out. It'll tell you more about his story and uh, some of his resources and things he's working on. Super good. And we will call that it for the day. Hope to see you next week on the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>